0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll go to what was the winter home of the Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Circus in Sarasota.
1: Bringing the circus here in 1927 changed the entire tenor of what the city is, and we still feel that today.
0: We'll revisit the 1914
2: Reunion of Confederate Soldiers in Jacksonville, just under 50,000 Confederate veterans descended on the city of Jacksonville during this weekend. And keep in mind that Jacksonville's total population was only about 60,000 people.
0: And we'll discuss the African-American travel guides called Green Books. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. ¶¶ Today, the John and Mabel Ringling Museum of Art Complex in Sarasota includes a 21-gallery museum that surrounds a sculpture garden, the Ringling's unique mansion called Katazan, the Oslo Theater, and the Circus Museum. As leader of the Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Circus, John Ringling became known as the Circus King, but he began his career in 1884 working as a circus clown with five of his brothers. Laura Stiefel Moore is head of educational programs at the Ringling Museum.
1: I think really early on in the show, the brothers all had to do, you know, was sort of all hands on deck, and they were really putting the show together themselves. It was a scrappy little show. Their animal uh, offerings were, you know, a dog and, and nothing much more exotic than that. Um, but what we see happening is they really start to um, develop. A strong sense of how to manage and administer the circus, rather than just be the performers themselves. Uh, there's a, a famous quote they would say, I mean, "We divided the job, but we stuck together," um, and I think that was really the key to their success. Or competitors referred to them as a many-headed hydra. Um, so I think that ability that they each sort of specialized, they had a niche talent, um, and for John it became uh, what's known as the advanced man position. So he would travel out in front of the circus and arrange logistics. So he really had a mind for, for logistics, for arranging everything. He had to make sure that he found a site that would be appropriate for the circus. He had to pick a town and the, and the right time when the harvest had just come in or whatever it was so that people had money to spend on the circus. He had to arrange for all the provisions and the food. Um, so, really, he, he got to know America really well through that role, um, but he was really uh, instrumental in, in scheduling the circus and making sure everything fell into place.
0: By 1889, the Ringling Brothers Circus was traveling across the country by train. Eventually, they owned their own caravan with more than 100 rail cars. John Ringling's personal rail car is on display in the Circus Museum.
1: So, we have the Wisconsin here at the Ringling. Uh, and that was John and Mabel's private rail car, one of a couple that they had. Um, and it's the Wisconsin, you know, after the, the brothers who, who had spent a lot of time in Baraboo, Wisconsin. Um, and it really, is just sort of a testament to the life they had achieved for themselves, John and Mabel, at that point. It's incredibly luxurious, um, and it's, it's beautifully decorated. It's been beautifully restored. Um, so we see them traveling with the circus in, in the height of luxury, in probably stark contrast to the performers who were all crowded in. I mean, some of them had you know more ample space, but John and Mabel were really living the high life when they were traveling with the circus.
0: Karen Bell is outreach education manager for the Circus Arts Conservatory. For 30 years, Bell was a featured clown with the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. She has fond memories of traveling on the company train with performers from
3: around the world. So the Wisconsin, which is the car here on the museum property, is absolutely beautiful. It was the private car of the Ringlings. The inside of it is gorgeous. Uh, Wood paneling and fluffy beds and nothing like what I lived in. But there was all sorts of different types of rooms and styles depending on who you were. Because I was a clown, I'm kind of lower in the echelon of the circus world. But the big stars would have large rooms similar to uh, what the Ringlings had. There was one circus star who actually had a grand piano in her train car in her room. (laughs) So, but the um, most people had what was called a stateroom, which was like a nine by six room, and then there'd be a hallway. And so, when there's train runs were happening, you could actually go up and down the train and visit people, and you know have access to everybody else on the train. Uh, back in the '40s, when there were about a thousand people working for Ringling. They had two train cars, and the first train car would have all the things that were necessary to get the tent up and moving. So they would have the kitchen, because, of course, the circus lives on their stomach, Uh, all the draft horses and draft animals, the work animals, and the workers. And then they would pack up and leave, and then the second train would have all the performers and the tent. So as the show was on, they would actually be loading the train. And this is the same to today. So when the audience members would leave the tent after a performance, it would just be the big top and nothing else. It'd be just like vanished. (laughs) And the next morning, it was all gone. It was like the circus was never there. In
0: 1907, the Ringling Brothers bought the Barnum & Bailey Circus, but they didn't merge operations until the winter of 1918, 1919. Jennifer Lemmer Posey is circus curator at the Ringling Museum.
4: The Ringling Brothers were so ambitious and they watched for an opening to grow their business. So after James Bailey took the Barnum & Bailey Circus to Europe for five years, the brothers had, had grown their routes and when Bailey came back he passed away a couple of years later. And the Ringling Brothers bought the show and and they did travel those two units separately for a number of years because that meant that much more ground that they could cover. So the Barnum and Bailey title had this uh, weight on the, the eastern seaboard. People knew that title and that was what they wanted to see when they saw Circus and out in the Midwest it was the Ringling Show. And so it was really successful for them to keep the two shows running but as the century progressed, you get to the beginnings of World War I, and you also see the death of some of the older Ringling Brothers. And so at that point, the, the existing brothers had to, to really evaluate how they could keep the business going and keep their very close handle on, on how it was maintained. They were so hands-on that when they were down to two or three brothers, they needed to combine the shows. And so they did that for the 1919 season. Uh, you see the first Combination of this mega circus that opens in Madison Square Gardens.
0: The circus made John Ringling an incredibly wealthy man, but he also had other business interests. Laura stiefel Moore.
1: Ringling had a lot of interests, a lot of irons in the fire. And we we say that he was probably the most financially successful of all the brothers because he diversified his portfolio, which is you know sound advice. Uh, so he had railroads he was the president of several railroads and which makes a lot of sense given what he was doing with the circus he knew the railroads all across america uh, he also had some ranches out west in montana and oklahoma and while he was out there he got into oil drilling as well he had some oil wells so he's, he's kind of working on all of those projects kind of all at once you know so he's never fully devoted to anyone at any given time uh, and always of course running the circus with his brothers And then it's the the land boom in Florida of the 1920s where he really realizes that Sarasota is this sort of gem to be developed. And he decides he's going to fashion himself a capitalist, and that was a term that he liked to use to refer to himself rather than a circus impresario um, as the years go by. At that point, he really gets into real estate and and develops Sarasota. He developed the Keys, um, what is today Longboat Keys, St. Armand's, Bird Key, um, and, and really tried to develop the entire town.
0: John and Mabel Ringling were what might be called soulmates today. They married in 1905 and became interested in Sarasota by 1911. In 1926, they completed construction of their ornate mansion called Catazan or House of John. It was modeled after Venetian palaces. Mabel Ringling was particularly involved in the design of the spectacular home. Jennifer Lemmer Posey
4: the Catazan is actually listed on the blueprint documents as the residence of Mrs. John Ringling. So we see very much how invested Mabel was in creating a home for herself and, and her husband. She was actively involved in speaking with the architect Dwight James Baum about palazzos she'd seen in Venice and, and these other ideas that would help create this amazing mansion here on Sarasota Bay. It, it echoes historic references of Venetian architecture, but there are many personal touches. A lot of the murals and the artwork that you see within the house really speak to Mabel's personality and and her love of entertaining. There are wonderful grand spaces to invite people into. Laura Stiefel-Moore,
1: it would be great to go back and, and have a party with John and Mabel in the 1920s at the Catazan. Absolutely, uh, you you can read newspaper reports from from the late 20s. Uh, some accounts say you know there was a party of 300. I've read up to 475 people would be at any kind of given party. They had a beautiful organ installed in the house, so they could have concerts with with the organ. Of course, they would hire live musicians as well. There would be dancing, there's a beautiful ballroom in that space, and they've got a huge marble terrace outside right on the water, so it could really accommodate a lot of people. Um, So they would have the big parties, the lavish parties, um, and then maybe some more casual daytime affairs. Mabel loved bridge, so she would have bridge tournaments and luncheons um, for her, her circle of women friends. Um, and then just entertaining on a small scale, if you were lucky enough to be a guest at the house, they had a 125-foot yacht, so you could go out cruising on the bay. Um, John might take you over to look at some of his real estate that he was uh, developing. Uh, they had clay tennis courts. You know, you could, there was beachfront along the way, so you could swim. They had a, a saltwater swimming pool. Uh, so really, there was no shortage of, of entertainment and things to do at the Cotazan.
0: The year after Catazan was built, John Ringling made Sarasota the official winter home of the Ringling Brothers' Barnum & Bailey Circus.
1: Bringing the circus here in 1927 changed the entire tenor of what the city is, and we still feel that today. Because not only did it turn Sarasota into even more of a tourist destination than it had already been but we have circus families now who would come down for winter quarters but then put roots down here. So there's no shortage of of circus performers still today from these families who had worked in the Ringling Brothers Um, Barnum & Bailey Circus and so that legacy of circus is very much alive, but I think too you still can drive down some roads and see all of these motels that had to spring up because all of a sudden we'd have thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming over the winter to come to winter quarters of the circus and experience this major tourist destination. So I think from that very early period Sarasota is already sort of navigating how do we accommodate these tourists, what does it mean to be a tourist friendly town, Um, so in, in both of those senses I think it really impacted the city as it is today.
0: The Ringling's wealth allowed them to indulge their love of travel and collecting art. Laura Stiefel Moore.
1: John had dabbled in art collecting um, from basically the turn of the century, about 1910, 1915. He starts making art purchases, but without any real direction or purpose. Um, And it's not till 1925 that he decides he's going to build an art museum right here uh, on the property where the museum still is today and where they were living. So he sets his mind to this massive undertaking, and within six years he had acquired basically the bulk of of the collection that we have today. Uh, Right away he engages an architect to to build, uh, to work on designs, and he's able to, you know, through his travels, he's going to Europe very frequently to look for new circus acts, but while he's there he's also able to purchase a lot of of artwork and ship it back to, to America. He and Mabel also frequented auctions, especially in New York, um, but in, in the Northeast. A lot of the Gilded Age mansions that had been um, you know, prominent several decades earlier were being torn down to make way for commercial buildings and skyscrapers, and all of the contents of those buildings were being sold at auction. So he gets a lot of fine art that way as well, but also furnishings for the Katizan, um beautiful furniture, tapestries, and things like that.
0: When John Ringling died in 1936, he left his museum and all of its contents to the state of Florida. In 2017, the Ringling Brothers' Barnum & Bailey Circus ceased operation, but Ringling's legacy lives on in a variety of ways. After three decades as a professional clown, Karen Bell is now Outreach Education Manager for the Circus Arts Conservatory.
3: The Circus Arts Conservatory is pretty much an umbrella of different programs. We have our Circus Sarasota performances in the winter. We have our Sailor Circus Academy which is our after school youth program. We have our humor therapy program which works with seniors in skilled nursing facilities and our education program where we teach youth about physics through the eyes of the circus.
0: The John and Mabel Ringling Museum of Art Complex in Sarasota includes a 21 Gallery Museum, the Katazan Mansion, the Oslo Theater, and the Circus Museum. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to shop for great books on Florida history and culture, watch archived editions of our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, Florida was the third state to secede from the Union, helping to start the Civil War, and that Confederate legacy continued to be commemorated long after the war ended.
2: Yeah, that's right, Ben. It's, it's easy to forget now, but Florida was really a, a big part of the Confederate struggle, you know, of the American Civil War. As you said, they were the third state to secede in early 1861. And Florida's population was fairly small when the war started in 1861, and they contributed. Somewhere around 15,000 soldiers and sailors ultimately were either conscripted or volunteered for service, and, and many of them served outside of Florida. A good portion of them never came back. But 15,000 young men was a A large percentage of the total population of the state. And not only that, they contributed a lot of food including beef and fish and things like that to the Confederate cause. A lot of supplies came through the peninsula from ships from the Caribbean. So it did play a big part in the Confederacy. What's interesting though is that after the war a lot of uh, both Union and Confederate veterans ended up moving to Florida after the 1860s. Florida became a very popular destination for uh, a lot of these veterans. They, They were founding cities, they got involved in agriculture, and this is kind of a a time of tremendous growth in the 1870s and 80s. So a lot of the people that moved to Florida uh, had served for either the Union or Confederate armies, and they became part of the local Florida communities. Now, what's interesting, too, is that during the American Civil War, there were millions of young men that fought on on both sides. And on the Confederate side, most estimates put it at at about uh, one million soldiers and, and sailors, uh, served at one point for the Confederacy. Now, that's an enormous portion of the population, of the American population. So these uh, groups started forming of the, the survivors, these veterans groups. And oftentimes they were local groups that were formed or, or chartered within individual southern states. Florida had their own chapters in, in large cities like Jacksonville and in Tampa and Tallahassee. But it wasn't until the late 1880s, in fact, 1889 specifically in Louisiana, that the concept of a national organization was uh, first introduced, and that became the United Confederate Veterans Organization, or the UCV, was formed in 1889. And this was really the counterpart of the GAR, the Grand Army of the Republic, which was a union veterans group that formed in the 1860s. Both groups served the veterans of the Civil War, helped them with financial issues. They, they provided pension benefits to widows of some of the veterans. They, they gave them a home for people that were getting older, kind of an, a retirement home. Um, but they also hosted a lot of reunions and get-togethers for these veterans to kind of form a comradeship, as they uh, argued, I guess, at that time. In 1914, the city of Jacksonville hosted one of these National Confederate
0: Reunions, and you have a program here from that event.
2: Yeah, that's right, Ben. We're looking at the 1914 program that was entitled Progress, and this took place May 6th, 7th, and 8th, 1914, in the city of Jacksonville. And they boasted just under 50,000 Confederate veterans descended on the city of Jacksonville during this weekend. And keep in mind that Jacksonville's total population was only about 60,000 people, so this was a major influx of people into the city of Jacksonville, and they came just for this UCV reunion. And they actually camped out throughout the city. They set up these canvas tents, and a lot of the other state chapters and local chapters and, and volunteer groups, you know, descended on the city of Jacksonville. And what we're looking at today is is the program, as you stated. And it was a three-day event. On the first day, we have uh, concerts and uh, invocations, and there were songs. There were choir performances. The governor at the time, Park Trammell, actually came out, gave an introduction. It was a major, major event. And that's, it, it's important to keep in mind, especially in the early 20th century, Florida was still a part of the Old South, you know, and, and as I said before, there were a lot of veterans who lived in Florida. They may have came from other states, but they ended up moving to Florida, and that affected kind of the, the general mindset. So people were welcoming of these Confederate veterans, and it was a massive event, and you can see that uh, throughout the program. Interestingly, there's film footage of this event that gives us a, a really good look at early 20th century Jacksonville. It's amazing that this has survived, and and you're right. This is a silent film. It's about 16 minutes long, and it's actually held by the State Archives of Florida up in Tallahassee. They've actually digitized the film so you can watch it online, and it's really fascinating not only just to see these veterans. It's interesting because it was so far in the past. You don't really think about veterans of the Civil War kind of mingling, but there were so many of these veterans that had survived the war, and you can see them shaking hands with uh, each other and singing songs and, you know, playing the fiddle and, and milling around their camp and at one point they're uh, entering the mess hall and you can see all these veterans who are dining together and talking about, you know, we're assuming just their their memories of the wartime period, but you can also see what it was like in Jacksonville kind of on the street. You see street cars passing by and children running in the streets and horse-drawn carriages all around the city. And it's really fascinating footage and it's one of the few surviving Uh, at least one of the earliest records, at least film records, we have of one of these reunions. We can actually see what these people look like with their long gray beards and, you know, the canes walking around. These were the, the folks that were on the ground during the American Civil War. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you.
0: Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see the program from the Confederate reunion in Jacksonville or the 1914 footage of the event, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. The film Green Book about African-American pianist Don Shirley and his white driver traveling the South in the 1960s gets its name from travel guides written for African-Americans. Holly Baker is a public historian at the University of Central Florida and has this report.
5: Certainly Jim Crow made travel and accommodations more difficult. I have an example. Jack and Rachel Robinson left Southern California for the Dodgers training camp at Daytona Beach, Florida. They were going to fly from Southern California via New Orleans and Pensacola. They left on February 28th and they were to be there on March 1st. They were delayed for 12 hours once they got to New Orleans. The airline would not let them leave the idea was that there were other white passengers that were able to bump them. They also weren't able to eat because the airport was segregated. Fortunately, Jack Robinson's mother, Mally Robinson, had made a shoebox full of boiled eggs and fried chicken for them, and so they did have that. Finally, they got to Pensacola, and once again, they couldn't eat in the airport, so they had to take a bus, and they had to sit in the back, and they took the bus from Pensacola to Daytona, and they finally got there. So they were late, but they
6: did make it. That was historian Dr. Fawn Gordon talking about the difficulties faced by baseball legend Jackie Robinson and his wife Rachel as they traveled to Daytona Beach, Florida in 1946 for his first spring training with the minor league baseball team, the Montreal Royals. The next year, Jackie Robinson became the first African-American major league baseball player when he joined the Brooklyn Dodgers. Jackie and Rachel Robinson's journey from Los Angeles to Daytona Beach shows just how challenging it was for African-Americans to travel during segregation. Their experience also helps to explain why African-American travel guides called Green Books became popular during this time. Dr. Gordon has more about Green Books. The first Green Book was published in
5: 1936. It was the brainchild of Victor Hugo Green, who was a postal worker in New York. And initially, that first year, 1936, the Green Book was only for local in New York City, for those places, for blacks who were visiting or who lived there, but wanted to know safely where they could eat and do other things. And so in 1937, the Green Book became national in scope, and it remained so until the last one was published in 1967.
6: The Green Book's motto, printed on the cover, read, carry your Green Book with you, you may need it. Jackie Robinson later recalled that once he arrived in Daytona Beach, he continued to have issues finding accommodations and food, He could not stay in the same hotel or eat in the same restaurants as his white teammates. Many African Americans traveled with Green Books in order to avoid the sort of issues Jackie Robinson and his wife faced on their trip to Daytona Beach. As Dr. Gordon explains, Green Books enabled black travelers to find places where they could feel welcome and safe. If you
5: didn't have the Green Book, then you wouldn't know where you could eat or where you could have overnight accommodations or you couldn't find nightclubs or taverns or garages or any of those things that you need when you're traveling in the country. So the Green Book provided not only listings for overnight accommodations and restaurants, but for barbershops shops and beauty shops and tourist homes, even if there wasn't a motel that was black owned that would accommodate them. If you needed a tailor or whatever you might need, it wasn't just overnight and dining, but it was about all the things that you might need at any time. And the Green Book provided that. It was about black businesses and the patronage, certainly, of black customers.
6: The Green Books stopped publication in the 1960s. Dr. Gordon tells us more about the end of Green Books. In
5: 1967, I think that was the last year that it was published, but that was because the Civil Rights Act of 1964 had been passed. And even before then, as early as the 1940s, Victor Green had always written that one day he hoped that the Green Book would not be necessary anymore. But of course, now we know that there is niche travel, and so there might be a need for a resurgence of the Green Book, simply from the standpoint of wanting to accommodate black travelers.
6: Dr. Gordon explains why it is important to remember and preserve Green Books. We like these historic artifacts,
5: and we don't want to forget what Jim Crow modernity was, what it looked like in that historical moment.
6: For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker radio and podcast producer with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also find us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org or listen as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben Biassi, Robert Casanello, and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.